0: stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, living in luxury every day. A beggar named Lazarus had been laid at his gate. Lazarus was covered with sores and longed to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Besides this, the dogs also came and licked his sores. Eventually the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus at his side. He called out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in misery in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in misery." Besides all this, a great chasm has been set in place between us and you, so that those who want to cross from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's home, because I have five brothers, to warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. Abraham replied to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, the only one through whom we can have our best life both now and later. There used to be a TV show on the Discovery Channel called Myth Busters, And the title of the show gives the premise away, doesn't it? The hosts of the show would take a myth or an urban legend or an old wives' tale and they put it to the test. They would scientifically test if this thing was true or possible or not. So, for example, they tested the, the the myth or the urban legend that a, a car can drive through a padlocked uh, chain-link fence. Is it possible? Well, they proved it is, although you might need a new fender and a new uh, radiator if you try to do that. They tested the question of whether elephants are really afraid of mice, and I guess they really don't like to have mice around. They tested that Hollywood theory that You see in the westerns where a gunfighter knocks the hat off of his opponent with a bullet. Is that possible or not? It is. You just run the significant chance of putting a fairly large hole in that person's head as well. So they tested all these myths to see if they were true or not. Now, most of those myths are fairly self-evident, right? You wouldn't probably make the mistake of thinking that you can run your car through a fence without damaging it at all. But there are some myths that the devil uses from hell that do real eternal damage to people's souls. And today Jesus busts full of them using science, but using the inerrant and powerful word of God. first myth is this, that all people go to heaven. It's funny how even in our increasingly secular age where people could care less about spiritual things, could care less about God, could care less about what happens after this life, that most people still believe that there is a life after this life, that it is a better life than this one, and that everyone, virtually everyone, apart from terrorists and pedophiles and politicians, everyone is going there. There's just that assumption that everyone is going to heaven. And Jesus makes it clear that this is not true. That heaven is real. And people do, like this rich man, people do go there. Maybe the most striking thing about this uh, is that it's Jesus telling this story. And, And just incidentally, I know you probably have heard this labeled as a parable. Now, a parable is an earthly story which conceals, which kind of hides a, a heavenly truth at the center. And while Jesus is certainly speaking an earthly story here, he's speaking in earthly terms, I don't think the, the heavenly meaning is hidden at all. It's right there on the surface. But Jesus is talking about hell. I thought Jesus was way too nice for that, too tolerant, too loving. He would never consider sending people to hell, would he? That's the idea that most people have about him. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus speaks more directly, more often, and more vividly about hell than anyone else in the entire Bible. Here he describes hell as a place of never-ending torment, a place where people burn alive with no hope of ever ending that torment through death a place where people are separated from God and his love forever, which is, bar none, the worst part of hell, to be separated from God. And of course, he is still using earthly language here because no human words can describe how horrifying hell will be. Now it doesn't matter what the popular opinion out there is. Not all people go to heaven Many like this rich man will end up which leads us to our second myth that appearances matter. And again, this is a myth that's been around since the beginning of time. It's the idea that you are happy and healthy and wealthy, that God must be happy with you, and if you are not, if you are poor and must be angry at you. And the the correlation then is that if you're blessed in this life, that must mean that you will eventually be blessed in eternal life. And if you're not blessed in this life, well, I hate to break it to you, it's only going to get worse in eternity. The Lord dispels that myth by telling this story about men whose outward circumstances, whose appearance couldn't be more different. You have the rich man who he says lived in luxury and that's that's referring especially to his his what he ate he at a time when most israelites only ate meat maybe once a month this man was feasting on a daily basis he was having five star meals every single day while lazarus was just craving the crumbs that would fall from his table and and i can't prove this for sure but but i think this is true that The crumbs that are being described here would be the scraps of bread. You know, they didn't have napkins back then. So if you were rich enough, you would use use the leftover bread to wipe off your hands and then just throw it on the ground. And Lazarus wanted just those scraps, the the napkins that were being thrown away by this rich man, but, but he didn't get it. The rich man wore purple and linen. Uh... To dye something purple in those days, you'd have to squeeze a drop out of a little mollusk, and and only a drop or two came out, so these were extraordinarily expensive colored clothes to get. And there were no practical reason to wear those types of clothes other than just to broadcast how wealthy you were. The only clothing that Lazarus got to wear were sores that were licked by the dogs. Then we said, that they both died. And that's all we hear about Lazarus was that he died. But the rich man was buried, which seems to indicate that there was an actual funeral. While Lazarus was probably unceremoniously tossed into a mass grave somewhere with all the other beggars, there was a funeral for the rich man. Now I didn't watch a single second of the funeral events surrounding Queen Elizabeth II's death. But from what I heard, it was quite a show. Lasting days, costing millions. Have you ever been to the funeral of a very wealthy person? Flowers upon flowers upon flowers, and every bouquet okay has a little card on it indicating who it came from so that that family can get a little bit of credit. You hear people falling over themselves, trying to give eulogies, trying to be seen and heard, and heard at the, the funerals of wealthy and famous people. Even, for some reason, those who speak at the at the wedi- at the funerals of wealthy people, pastors and priests, they feel the need to focus more on on the life of that person rather than on the life and res and death and resurrection of Christ. The funerals for wealthy people are are quite a thing, but Jesus shows that appearances can be deceiving. He pulls back the curtain and he shows us what's actually happening. He shows us something that we couldn't ever see on our own. He shows us what's happening in eternity. He shows us that the tables are turned there. So, first of all, what's the most notable thing about Lazarus? It's not that he was poor and it's not that he was likely a cripple. He had to be carried to the gate of the rich man, but that he had a name. This is the first and only one ever names one of the characters in his stories or his parables. And the name, I think, tells us everything we need to know about Lazarus. It comes from the Hebrew root Eliezer, which means God is my help. A beggar with nothing of his own, who could only pray that some of the scraps from the rich man's table would be given to him, whose only whose only uh, salve in life was having dogs lick his wounds, who probably uh, wanted to die. But God was his help, and God helped him. By giving him a name, the Lord is indicating to us that, that no matter how poor a person is, no matter how little it seems that they have in this life, if your name is written in heaven, that is all that matters. The rich man didn't help Lazarus, but, but God certainly did. The rich man is not named, though. And that's horrifying. Because the Lord does not know the names of the damned. You remember the other parts of Scripture, the other parts of the Gospels where people will be pounding on the door to heaven saying, let me in, let me in! And the Lord will say, I don't know you. Your name is not on the list. we a turning of the tables here. We see that When Lazarus died, the angels came and carried his body to heaven. There were no angels involved with the rich man's death because the damned don't need any help from angels to get to hell. And finally, we see the ultimate turning of the tables that now Lazarus is feasting in glory at the side of Abraham while the rich man is screaming his lungs out in the horrors of hell. Appearances can be deceiving. And there's a lesson there for us too. Paul told us, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Be careful that you do not think that just because you are a Lutheran and you've been confirmed and you come to church every once in a while that you can't fall from faith, that the devil can't convince you to turn from repentance and focus instead on how comfortable you are externally. Those tables can always be turned. And don't make the mistake of, of trivializing this either. Don't make the mistake of thinking, well, the rich are bad and the poor are, are good. Or, or Wealth is no indication, or lack thereof, is no indication of where we will spend eternity. No outward appearance has any bearing on where we will spend eternity. I could be so crass as to make a, a very blunt and, and, and kind of scary analogy. Um, Almost every day, sadly, in our nation, there are people killed by drivers. It is not correct for us to say that if that drunk driver drives into a tree and kills himself, well, he must be going to hell. And it's not accurate for us to say that if that drunk driver kills a family of four, that they are automatically going to heaven. Outward circumstances do not have any bearing on where we will spend eternity. That's a myth. Which leads us to myth Number three, that church is no big deal. That while appearances may not matter, church doesn't matter either. Again, this is attached to a myth that's been around as long as time has been. The idea that faith is kind of a mystical, emotional thing. That that it lives inside of our hearts and that it's kind of something that God wirelessly charges us with. Now, you may have run across people who say things like, well, I really felt God in that sunrise. Or that that kind of Christian movie that I watched really made me feel like God was close to me. Or, you know, I, I think of God a lot. I'll, I'll get that sometimes when people find out that I'm a pastor. They, they kind of immediately feel the need to justify themselves They'll say, oh, you're a pastor? You know what? I think about God all the time too. I'm like, great, what do you think of him? Well, I wouldn't go that far as to think anything specific about him, okay? But I also get it when I visit the homes of people who have been neglectful of worship, of coming to church, of the means of grace. And they'll say, no, 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 Pastor, you you, you don't have to worry about me. I I still have my catechism and Bible. Well, "Well, where are they? Somewhere. I still have them. Uh, I pray once in a while, especially when things get really bad in my life. I pray. Well, good. What do you pray about? Wouldn't get that specific. Say, well, I think about God all the time. Again, great. What do you think about Him? And that's about as far as it goes. There's this idea that we can separate church from our faith, that a church is kind of a very subjective, mystical thing that, that I have it if I think I have it. But you realize how uncertain that all is, right? You know, we're already bent inwards on ourselves. We're already always thinking about ourselves. Is faith one more thing where we have to look inside of us to see if we have it? Where we can measure how strong it is based on how much we feel it? Faith in faith or faith that looks inward is, is really no faith at all. Now you might ask, where do I see this in this story? Well, one of the big questions is, why did the rich man go to hell? I think probably in Sunday school, we learned that the rich man went to hell because he wasn't very nice to Lazarus. Well, we don't really see an explicit indication of that here, do we? I mean, we're we're told the two very different stories, but can you imagine that it was the rich man who actually cleared the table and took the scraps out and threw them away? It was probably his servant. We have no indication that the rich man ever actually ran into Lazarus. We have no indication that he spit on him, that he beat him, or that he yelled at him, get off my lawn. We don't know any of those things, nor do we have any indication that the rich man committed some other atrocious sin, that he was an insurrectionist, the worst of all sins today, right? That he was a murderer, that he was an adulterer, that he was a thief or a perjurer. We don't have any indication of that. What is the only sin that is explicitly stated in this text? to sin against the third commandment, not listening to Moses and the prophets. And so while this rich man probably was viewed and probably viewed himself as a Jew in good standing, attested to by the fact that he called Abraham father and that Abraham even condescended condescended to call him child, while he may have appeared to be a good Jew in his life, apparently didn't do was make listening to Moses and the prophets a priority. Apparently, he had no need for the means of grace. And so what's the connection there between faith and the means of grace? Faith and church. Why is church a big deal? Well, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that faith isn't a big deal. Faith is important. As Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So faith is the ultimate dividing line, but this idea that faith is something that can be mis- sustained by us just thinking about God in some vague way is false. It's a myth. Faith cannot be kept alive in our hearts without the word any more than our bodies can be kept alive without eating food. Can you stay alive by simply thinking? about food, you might be able to gain a few pounds by thinking about food, but you cannot sustain your life by thinking about it. It's a, it's a myth. The Bible is very clear about this. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. The book of Hebrews says, let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but rather let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. The Bible is very clear that we need to gather, we need to gather around the word, the means of grace in order to sustain our faith. Just think about it this way, where else are you going to have your attention taken off of yourself, your outward circumstances, how you're feeling in your gut today about God and have yourself focused somewhere completely different, not on yourself but on the cross of Christ, which is your salvation. The strength of faith doesn't come from how we feel about it. The strength of faith comes from the fact that it is finished. Your sins have been taken away once and for all. But we all know how easy it is to forget that. The moment we walk out those doors. The moment all of our troubles hit once again. The moment we sit down and watch the Packer game. How we forget that it is finished. And so if you've ever wavered in your faith, if you've ever doubted how strong your faith is, Wondered if you actually have true saving faith. Then there's good news in this, busting this myth. The good news is that you don't have to look inside. The good news is that you don't have to try to measure how strong your faith is yourself. The good news is that you don't have to look at your outward circumstances and think, God has really punished me, I must have done something wrong. The good news is that you can look to something objective for your faith. If you've been baptized, then you're just like Lazarus. God has written your name in the book of life in heaven. If you heard and and believed the words of absolution that were spoken just before, then the gates of heaven are already open to you. If you faithfully receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ here at this table, your faith is being strengthened whether you can feel it or not. Because you are being directed outside of yourself, away from your sins, toward your Lord and Savior who has taken all of your sins away. Make no mistake, church is a big deal. Because church is where God recharges your faith. I know what some of you may be thinking as we talk about how important church is. You probably are thinking of people you love who seem to have no need who have fallen away from receiving these means of grace. And you may be thinking a lot like this rich man who is already in hell. What's going to happen to them when they die? And I know because you love them, you desperately want them to be brought to faith. You want them to come to repentance. You want them to be converted. You want to see them and be with them for all eternity in heaven. But you may want that so badly that you fall for a and final myth, which is that miracles can convert people. I guess it's interesting that the rich man had fallen for this myth even while he was burning up in the fires of hell. You know, finally, at least, accomplish accomplished something for him. It got him off of thinking only about himself, his self-centeredness. He did finally worry about his brothers, who apparently also... We're in the habit of neglecting the law and the prophets. And so he asks Father Abraham, send Lazarus to go to them, to appear to them, and tell them that heaven and hell are real. They will be convinced if someone shows up to them. Is that true? Is that true of the people we love? Do we ever pray, Lord, would you... Do something to wake them up. Do something to lead them to repentance. Maybe, maybe, it's not, maybe it's not resurrect somebody from the dead to show up to them, but maybe it's use some other supernatural means to prove that you are real. Do we ever fall into that trap? Do we ever fall for that myth? Is it real? If someone were to show up alive who had been dead, if the Lord were to paint your loved one's name in the clouds and say, repent and believe, would that work? No. Don't take my word for it, though. Listen to Abraham. Abraham says, point blank, they have Moses and the prophets, If they don't listen to them, they're not going to listen, even if somebody were to rise from the dead. Even if Lazarus were to rise from the dead, knock on their door and say, hey guys, uh, hell is real? I I know because I saw your brother there. That wouldn't work convince them. That wouldn't bring them to faith. That wouldn't convert their heart. Abraham states categorically. And in fact, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, they're filled with miracles, aren't they? Including at least three resurrections from the dead. My favorite of which is um, some of the people of Israel were burying one one of the prophets who had died. And some raiders from Midian were coming And so they didn't have time to dig a grave for him, so they threw him into Elisha's grave (laughs) and pops right out. He's alive again. There are miracles of resurrection in the Old Testament. Moreover, and I think this kind of relates to why Jesus uses the name Lazarus, Jesus raised a real man named Lazarus from the dead. After three days he was in the grave and Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. The Jews all saw it. And what was their reaction? They wanted to not only kill Jesus even more, they wanted Lazarus for a second time. Poor Lazarus. First and foremost, though, Jesus himself rose from the dead. And we know how the Jews reacted to that resurrection, don't we? They paid the soldiers to keep it quiet. Miracles do not convert people. Faith comes from hearing the message. So don't doubt for one second that God is doing everything he can to bring your loved ones who have fallen away back to faith, back to repentance, to convert their hearts. He has given you His mighty Word and He sent it to every corner of this world. It's as accessible as it has ever been since the time of Eden. And that is a powerful Word. Do not doubt that. It's the same Word that created the heavens and the earth, the same Word that parted the waters of the Red Sea. Word with which Jesus changed water into wine and made the storm calm down and fed thousands. That same word is in your possession right now. And if you really love someone who has neglected the means of grace, what you will do is speak that word to them. Because that word is more powerful than any miracle. Hell is real. Jesus busted that myth that hell is fake. Some people do go there, but no one has to. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus kicked open the doors of heaven so that all may enter eternal life. No one is so good, though, that they don't need the Word of God in order to get into heaven, and no one is so bad that the forgiving Word of God can't convert and soften and save them by God's grace. Mythbusters busted myths in order to entertain people. Jesus busts myths in order to save lives. Don't believe the myths. Believe the one who is speaking this story, the one who suffered in hell for your sake, so that when you die, you might be carried to heaven by the angels. Amen.